in the liturgical calendar, it's called um, Transfiguration Sunday. You could tell that from the story that we read. And to begin this morning, I want you to take a look at this painting, which I'm sure you've, you've seen before. Hopefully, we're going to look at a painting that will appear on the screen right before us. There it is. So hopefully you've seen this um, before. Um, Michelangelo was, in fact, considered the greatest artist of his time. That time was mid-1400s through the first half of the 1500s. And this is one of his most famous works. It's from the Sistine Chapel in Rome. And this is one of the centerpieces of that, that ceiling. It's called The Creation of Adam. It's thought to be influenced by a medieval hymn, a well-known hymn. It was like the amazing grace of their time. It was called Veni Creator Spiritus. Um, it spoke of the finger of the paternal right hand, the digitus paternae dextere. And this painting, I don't know why, it fascinates me. Um, if you look carefully, you can notice the figure of God is, is stretching out toward the human with great intensity. His head in full profile, facing toward the man, his eyes fixed on him, his arm stretched out, his, even down to his index finger, fully extended, as though God is straining um, to, the, to the limit of God's reach. Every muscle in God's form is taut. And you can almost see by the, the flow of the fabric that God is in motion toward Adam, propelled by the angels, although the angels here don't look particularly fit um, <laughs> and a bit young for this kind of work, one would think, but, but in Michelangelo's day, their form suggested swiftness and elegant power. And it's as if God is, is focused here in raptured desire to reach out and close the gap between the divine and this human. There's an eagerness, a kind of generosity to God's pose, marshalling God's resources and strength. And, and God's reach comes to within just like an inch or less of the human. Some scholars say that it shouldn't be called the creation of Adam, it should be called the endowment of Adam, because he already exists here. He already has life. His eyes are open. He's conscious. So it isn't really creation so much as this is contact, or nearly so. And it seems Michelangelo is, is meant, to, he, he meant to convey um, sort of this unrelenting determination on the part of God to reach out and connect with humankind, to be present with humanity, to be in relationship with us. God is extending reaching, stretching to touch the human, but God leaves this tiny space between them. A space, one, one might say, for Adam to reach back or not. His choice. God is fully present to the human by great effort and intention, by will and love, and yet there is, is this space between them. And God waits for Adam to reach back. And I want to suggest that in that space between those fingers lies so, so much. All the pain and suffering and misery 
of human experience, all war and disease and heartbreak, every fight you've ever had, every broken relationship, every selfish act, every deep disappointment. And yet, at the same time, within that space lies all human potential for life and love and happiness, for goodness, self-sacrifice, wholeness, flourishing, meaning, and purpose. All the energy for living, the desire and longing that kind of fires us into life, the hope that gives us the courage to reach out to each other and to God, the hope that sometimes breaks our hearts, that also makes our lives worth living. It all exists within that tiny space. Now, you might be tempted to call the space sin. Many people have. And of course, that's part of that space. But I think a better name for it might be longing. God's longing to have a relationship with humanity. Our longing to know God, to touch back, to make contact. Um, all, all human flourishing is filled with longing. And so it exists in that space only as pure potential. Now, Adam's posture is a little more difficult to interpret. His arm is only partially extended. It's kind of a lazy pose. I mean, you can see it, right? He's got, his weight is on his back shoulder. His head's slightly tilted. He seems a bit passive, almost indifferent to the connection. His arm is resting on his knee like he can't be bothered to just lift it up and reach out a little bit, right? It's almost like he's playing around, playing hard to get. There's an ambivalence. You see it? To his form. He's not leaning in toward God. It's almost like he's not sure he even wants the connection. Maybe he thinks God should close the distance. Maybe he lacks the strength. Maybe he's weary and afraid to reach out. Maybe he just woke up. Although it appears as though all he really needs to do is just lift the finger. And I wonder if you've ever felt this way. It's kind of weary and spent and fearful, reticent. So that just lifting, <laughs> lifting a finger to reach for God, it seems like an impossible task. I have. I do often. Like God is so close and yet so far away. Like God has done all God can do without overwhelming and the rest is up to us but we just don't have it, you know, the strength, the desire to close the gap. Well, the tension in this painting is, in a sense, unresolved. The fingers never touch. The gap remains. And I think it's part of what makes it so genius, so incredible. And I think the gap between those two fingers, it just contains a, a deep insight into the human condition. If you know your art history, you know Michelangelo actually felt the same way. He spent four grueling years completing these frescoes, and it was tedious work because frescoes are, are done in wet plaster. So they're working not just with paint, but with plaster as well, and it had to be perfect, not too wet, not too dry, had to be mixed without any impurities or else it would crack when it, when it dried. And he was painting with, you know, inconsistent colors and dyes and trying to make it all consistent over this huge 
um, work, and all of it was compounded by the fact that this fresco is on the ceiling. He produced it while lying flat on his back atop a scaffolding more than 70 feet in the air with paint and plaster dripping constantly onto his face and beard and mouth and eyes. It was so taxing that his eyesight began to fail during the process. It's a wonder he didn't paint every single figure with just this angry frown, you know? <laughs> At one point, exhausted by his work, discouraged by the seemingly overwhelming enormity of the project and doubting whether he was really up to the task, he wrote in his journal this single line. He wrote, I am no painter. I wish you could know that we're here looking at it. You know, 500 years later, this painting still speaking to us, reminding us of God's desire to make contact and the frustrating reality that our relationship with God is fraught. It's difficult. There are many barriers and challenges. And this is, for the Christian, the whole reason Christ appeared in the world. When the Apostle Paul explained it, he said that God has sent Christ, um, when he was talking about that, that phenomenon, he said God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. And I wonder if we believe that and experience it, that God's not far from any one of us. God's reaching out to us, you might say. And, and the question kind of then is, are we reaching back? And what does that even mean? What would that look like to reach back? Part of what the distance means is that humans are filled with desire for God and for some kind of meaning and purpose that also seems elusive. We long for a sense that there's like more going on in life than what meets the eye, that that life does have some kind of meaning because without a sense of meaningfulness, you know, we suffer. For most of human history, meaning and purpose were connected to God. I mean, different cultures thought about God differently, but most had the belief that God or the gods had infused life with purpose and that it was possible to experience our lives as meaningful. And it seems... Um, more than just a coincidence to me that at a time when, when belief in God is flagging, that the Western world would be having a crisis of meaning. We are. And there are complicated reasons for this. You know, a rise in secularity, advances in science um, that ex explained everything that used to be a mystery, you know, philosophical and cultural critiques of religion, the corruption and abuse and misuse of power among the clergy, plus all just the injustice of the world and pain and suffering and tragedy. And it's, it, you see the sorry state of things and it's easy to just say, really, like there's a God like watching this and not doing something about it? And many of those things are, are actually good things to be grateful for, science, technology, the unmasking of abuse, even the critiques of religion, these, these are good things. But along with those things, we've lost some things as well. There's a, an old German sociologist, Max Weber. He summed it up this way. He said, the fate of our times is characterized by rationalization. 
and intellectualization and above all by the disenchantment of the world. I think that word disenchantment seems big. We live in a disenchanted world. We've kind of lost a sense of mystery and wonder and awe. We've got cameras everywhere, right? We, we poke and prod and test and measure till all the mysteries just drained out of the world. Again, it's not a bad impulse to, to want to try and understand the world, but it's almost like in attending to measurable realities, we've lost the ability to recognize life's immeasurable realities. In the way that meaning, it always seems to be shrouded in mystery. When I say mystery, I mean not mystery as in unknowable. I mean mystery as in endlessly knowable. Like you solve one mystery and realize there's ten more. You like there's layers of mystery of knowledge, inexhaustible levels of meaning, uh, meaning that are not visible to, you might say, our instruments. It's like we've been told, if it can't be observed and measured, it doesn't exist. And so God is seen as like a superstition that's been debunked. And the world seems disenchanted because we no longer know how to attend to the mystery of the divine. And so, like, the radical importance of the distance between those two fingers. Oh, man, it can't be overstated. Just the, the longing and the meaning that distance generates. God is often accused of sort of getting off on being withholding from us. You know what I mean? But what if God is showing incredible restraint and tenderness, taking great care not to overwhelm, giving us the freedom to reach back? Our text for today, the story of the transfiguration, it, it kind of supports that view. It dares us to ask, what if God's reaching toward us? And what if the distance is real, but it's not meant to torture us? What if it's meant to draw us out from ourselves toward all kinds of strange others? What if there's some invisible aspect of the human experience um, that the eye can't see, you know? That our instruments can't detect, that will always evade things like science or philosophy? Because it operates on a different level, a spiritual level, a soul level. But it's nevertheless very real and vitally important, you know, for a good life. What if it's possible there's a God, the creator and sustainer of the universe, and this God actually shows up in ordinary life, not to be explained or categorized, but just to be known to be experienced as real. And that part of the reason we struggle to connect with this God is because we've been conditioned not to see, not to reach out. And so we just miss the ways God's available to us. We're staring right at God's presence but can't even and see it. The, the transfiguration kind of aims at that phenomenon. Because what the early church came to believe is that Jesus of Nazareth was a moment of knowability for a God who seemed unknowable. A moment of visibility for the invisible God. 
God discernible in Christ. And one of the reasons they came to this conclusion is, is the text for today. Six days later, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and brought them to the top of a very high mountain where they were alone. And he was transformed in front of them and his clothes were amazingly bright, brighter than if they had been bleached white. And Elijah and Moses appeared and were talking with Jesus. This painting is by Raphael, another one of the greats. It's the transfiguration on the mountaintop. Symbolically, in ancient literature and even in scripture, People climb mountains to reach out, to, to catch a glimpse of God. But when Peter, James, and John climb their mountain, um, they don't see God, but they do see God. They see Jesus. But he's all lit up like a lightning rod. And there are these two men with him that they discern to be Moses and Elijah. If you remember your Old Testament, Moses also climbed a mountain to meet with God, Mount Sinai, to receive the Ten Commandments. And when he got to the top, this cloud enshrouded Sinai, and Moses heard the voice of God speaking to him. So you can see the similarities between the stories. And when Moses came down, the skin of his face was shining brightly, and it kind of freaked everybody out. Remember that story? Aaron was like, um, Moses, like, your face looks really weird. It's freaking us out. So he, covered his, he had to cover his face with a veil, literally, because the people were like, this is too much. And, and this is what, you know, this is the power of the presence of God. It turns out while he was up there, Moses had asked to see God. And God's like, you can't see God. It'd be too much for you. And so he hid Moses in a cave and passed by so that Moses only saw his backside or saw where he was. Um, which was that, even that was enough to light him up like a Christmas tree. For some reason, God has to shield people from the full impact of God's deity. It has something to do with the infinite and the finite. When they come into contact, it never works out, out well for the finite, you know. The Hebrews, they said, no one can look on the face of God and live. So God was hidden in their writings, usually hidden in a cloud, often described as brighter than the sun, like a doorway to another dimension. And even when the door was closed, shafts of light came through the cracks and, and could blind anyone who saw them. And for lack of a better word, they began calling this light God's glory. Sometimes they'd be worshiping and the light would just show up. And the more light there was, the more cloud, the more, um, you know, distra like distraction or, or covering up there had to be. The thicker the cloud would have to be to protect them. No one can see God. But they could see God's glory, in a sense. God's um, impact. That's all they could bear. And even then, they, they glowed like glow sticks afterwards. Years later, Elijah would climb, some people think, the same mountain. The Lord hid him in the mouth of a cave as well so he could pass by and a wind tore at the mountain and an earthquake shook the trees and a fire ripped through the, through the valley. But when the Lord showed up, it was in the silence. First Kings says that when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face, veiled his face, just like Moses. So when Jesus climbed a mountain... A thousand years later, 
maybe not so surprising that Moses and Elijah, Elijah both showed up. And Mark says Jesus, actually all the Gospels who account for this, say Jesus was transformed. His, his clothes lit up, white, hot, and burning, but not consumed. Like Moses in the burning bush, he was crackling with electricity and power, the same glorious presence enveloping him. And then Moses and Elijah spontaneously appeared, just stopping by apparently for a little chat with, you know, the human welding rod. And, and to Jewish readers of this, right, you have to remember, Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets. And their presence here reminds the reader, you know, we kind of thought we had this all figured out with the law. Just follow these rules and rituals and you'll catch a glimpse of God. And then later they thought they had got figured out in the prophets. Just like treat your neighbor with justice and you'll catch a glimpse of God. And Israel's priests and prophets argued throughout their history to this day, really. But God never let one side win. Isn't that interesting? No, no, neither side got to abolish the other. They just lived in this tension. And what the mystics say is the tension is, is by design, right? The only way through that sort of dualism is not for one side to win. It's for some third thing to emerge out of the dualism, the tension. A new plane of wisdom. It's not on that same continuum. Or one way you could say this is, God can be most easily lost by being thought found. By our side, right? Or our people, or my group. But these certitudes and dualisms, they're worthless when it comes to the mystery of God, you know. When consumed with the need to be right, um, this obscures our capacity for God. Our silly fights, they make it impossible to catch a glimpse of the divine presence. The transfiguration, this story, re reveals that the law and the prophets, they were essential stages of humanity's growth and understanding of God. But to grow up, to experience God's presence in a fuller way, they're going to need a third thing that transcends the tension. Moses is the law, Elijah the prophets, and Jesus is that third thing. The presence of God within a human being. God's spirit embodied in human flesh. And then you got Peter, James, and John, and they're the church. It's really kind of the first time in scriptures that um, the law, the prophets, and the church are all together in one place. And it, ha it happens here on the mountaintop. And of course, in the Bible, the mountaintop is this metaphor for an encounter with God. Sleep is often a metaphor for naivete or cluelessness. And in the Gospel of Mark, they, it isn't mentioned, but in the other ones, and Luke, like Luke's gospel, it says, while this is all going on, the disciples are a few steps away, dead asleep. Which I'm like, these are my guys. This, is, this would be me, you know, for some reason. And Luke sort of warns us the real danger for most people isn't that we'll become, you know, just horrible hellions, you know, consumed with doing evil. It's that when God shows up in our world, we might just sleep 
through the whole thing. Luckily, they wake up and see what's happening. And Peter asks, could we maybe pitch some tents and sort of stay on this mountaintop forever? Then a cloud, it says, overshadowed them, and a voice spoke from the cloud. This is my son, whom I dearly love. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they, they no longer saw anyone ex with them except Jesus. So the voice of God speaks from the cloud. And we know this cloud, right? We've seen it before. It's, uh, it led the people through the wilderness. It filled the tent of meeting. Descended on Mount Sinai. And Moses and Peter, James, and John here, it's protecting them from the mysterious presence of, of God in and through Jesus. But we, we don't get to bottle it. You can't package the presence of God and sell it on TV, although the TV preachers try. We don't get to contain God. To You could say we don't get to wield God to support our agenda. You and I, we were born with the innate human capacity to commune with God. But in order to do this, we have to be willing to step into the mysterious cloud, the disorienting cloud that obscures God's presence on earth. The mystics came to call this the great cloud of unknowing. You step into the cloud and you kind of lose track of which way's up. Your senses don't work the way they used to. Your instruments are no good. The cloud shields us from being overwhelmed with God's glory. It disorients us, confuses our categories and dualisms. It's, it's, it's a metaphor for the space in which we can meet with God. It's a space that kind of thwarts our normal means of knowing and our the impulse to contain or control or manipulate God. It's a space where we have to suspend our beliefs, even, about God. We have to, in a sense, stop telling God who we need God to be or what we need God to do and just have to enter into this cloud of unknowing and surrender to the reality of God that always seems just a little bit beyond our reach. Step into the cloud of unknowing. And in the truest sense, this is an act of surrender. Surrender. It's the only way to encounter God. We have to meet God on God's own terms. We can't use God to prove that we're right, to win. We can't harness God to deploy for our purposes. We can't even really say who this God is, for sure. We can only surrender to God's presence in the great cloud of unknowing. Because God can be most easily lost by being thought found. Most easily missed by thinking we figured God out. So to come fully alive as humanity, we have to step into the cloud of unknowing. The, the encounter with God comes through unknowing all the stuff we think we know about God. The cloud symbolizes the confusing, disorienting nature of any true encounter with the divine. The place 
we meet God is not a place of human certitude and power. When people get all certain about their encounters with God, like start saying, you know, God told me this or God told me that, I usually run in the other direction. I get a little twitchy because this is not something we can't be certain about. Uh, when people start saying that, it's almost always in support of their working model of reality. You don't know. We don't know. If we want to encounter God, we have to leave the, those kind of certitudes and categories behind it, our need to be right, and we have to kind of surrender our working model of reality. Here in the Transfiguration, Jesus is making thin the veil between heaven and earth, God's realm and our realm, creating a place where the divine can break through, but this is not a place of certitude. It's a place of mystery. It's a cloud where our instruments don't work. And if you want to know God, you walk into this cloud. And the trick is, most of the time, our encounters with God will come through a veil, a cloud. But the cloud is other human beings. This is how we, most often, this is how we will encounter God, through other human beings. Jesus said, whenever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am. Step into the cloud of unknowing. Attend to the Spirit of God living through other human beings. God is still um, coming to us, veiled in human flesh. It's just to see, God, we have to let go of our need to be right or in control or better than other people and be humble enough to see the face of God in the other. Paul talked about this in, in 2 Corinthians. He said this, yes. Till today, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But, says the Torah, whenever someone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord, Adonai, in this text, means the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So all of us with unveiled faces see as in a mirror the glory of God, the glory of the Lord. And we are being charged into, or changed, sorry, into this very image from one degree of glory to the next by the Lord, the Spirit. So to turn to the Lord involves a removal of the veil so that we can kind of discern God's presence in others. As if we're looking in a mirror. I think of um, Adam after he was created alone in the second telling in Genesis and then um, put to sleep and then divided in two so it's another facing him as equal, like a mirror, right? Only then does God call this good. All of us being transformed in, into the very image of God by the Spirit. This is why Christ has come. And it's, um, it reminds me of the practice of namaste. You know this practice? It's from the East. You, you just clasp hands and bow to the other and say namaste. And what it means is the spirit of the divine, the mystery of the divine living in me bows to the spirit of the divine living in you. We used to do this with our kids when they get out of the shower before we gave them a towel. We'd go namaste. It's, it's trying to kind of draw the miracle of the transfiguration into a practice. Anytime two or three gather 
in the name of Christ, in the way of Christ. God is there. The season of Lent begins this Wednesday. And it's a season of intentional disorientation. We disorient ourselves. We, we step into the great cloud of unknowing for 40 days. The way we do this is we um, initiate little fastings and, and practices to disorient and confuse and even sort of annoy and irritate us. And we do this so we kind of let go of our certitudes and our need to be strong and right and good and to act like we've got a handle on everything and, and to humble ourselves to begin to try and see the, the face of God in others. We step into this mysterious, mystical space for these weeks of Lent, seven weeks, to remember or maybe um, relearn our capacity for God. But the truth is, and if you've, how many, how many of you have done Lent before as a practice in some way? Okay, well then you know. The truth is that for the most part, Lent is an exercise in failure. Does that resonate with anybody? We try these fasts and practices, and it's usually hit or miss, you know? But it doesn't matter, because the failures are productive. If we're trying through it all to wake up to the reality of God, the nearness of God. During Lent, we try to muster up the courage to admit that we're probably gonna, you know, have to get off our back shoulder and actually reach out a little bit. Just lift a finger, do something to reach back. To admit our need for God. Um, to grow up and stop being proud. To stand up and stop being afraid. To wake up. Maybe let, um, stop letting our, our past church hurts and traumas define our relationship with God, you know, and each other. To give up, stop boxing God in with doctrines and beliefs. Stop demanding God take the form that we have chosen and just let God be God for us. And you know what? We will be terrible at it most of the time. But even our failures can become this point of encounter with a God who is not far from any of us. And if we're lucky and if we try, we might just be able to see with unveiled faces the God who is everywhere, especially in the face of the other. And this is what God is after, what God wants for us, to love each other as though God is actually living through each of us, in each of us, because in fact, God is living in and through each of us. And to recognize this with unveiled faces, this is the glory of God. Amen? Let's pray. Oh God, we ask you to um, bless this upcoming Lenten season. And as we try to do our little fasts and open up some space for you in our lives, we pray that you would show up in the world, that you would show up to us personally, you know. Your spirit would be evident to us. We would sense your nearness. 
and that you would show up in the spaces in between us in our relationships with our church family, but also in our neighborhoods and the places we go to work, our families and friendships. I pray that as we think about this next season, these next seven weeks leading up to Easter, that we would kind of think of it as entering into this cloud of unknowing where our usual ways of navigation don't work, our, our usual instruments don't take the right readings, and we just have to surrender. <coughs> and that word surrender, it can, it can just mean a lot of different things for each of us. I pray that you give us courage. Amen. If you would stand, please. And we're going to receive communion now. The way we do communion at Redemption is we're just released row by row. You come forward with a, a plate of bread and a cup offered to you. You take a piece of bread and dip it in the cup. And as you do, they'll say, remember the body and blood of Christ. And you can say, I will remember, or however you feel comfortable answering. And the reason we do this is on his last night with his followers, Jesus did this. He had them all share the same cup, the same loaf of bread. And he said, this is a new symbolic meal we're doing here. He's reinterpreting a, a Jewish festival. And he said, the bread is like my body. The cup is like my life, my blood. He said, every time you, you gather, I want you to just take my life into your life. Be made out of the stuff I'm made out. And then go out into the world and be my hands and feet, my witnesses to the good news of the reign of God. And so this is why we do communion, just to remember who we are and what we're made of. And it's also why we um, don't put any limits on who can join us. Like anybody who calls in the name of Christ can join us at the table. But before we do this, will you join me and let's pray a blessing on the elements. Oh God, we do ask you to bless this bread and this cup. May it be to us a means of your grace, a spiritual food and drink. And as we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come and live inside us. Make us new from the inside out. And then send us out into the world to be salt and light. And let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness. All this to the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forevermore. Amen. Will you come?